0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the network load balancing deep dive session. I'm Pratibha Suryadevara. I run the load balancing team at AWS. I have here with me Brian McKinney, head of operations at Loggly, and Narayan Natarajan, who is the principal product manager for the load balancing family. A lot of things have been happening in the load balancing team this year, in addition to launching a new platform, the network load balancer. As we go through this session, hopefully you'll learn a little bit more about the load balancing in general and a lot more about the network load balancer. So let's dive in. What is elastic load balancing? Elastic load balancing automatically distributes the incoming traffic across multiple target groups, such as EC2 instances, containers, and IP addresses. As of September this year, we supported only containers and EC2 instances. IPS target is a new feature that we introduced in September. We'll talk a lot more about it during the session. Now let's get into advantages of Elastic Load Balancing. Right. So first, Elastic. I mean, all of us love about love what we love about cloud is Elastic. What we mean by Elastic is your load balancer scales automatically. If you create your own load balancer and host it inside an EC2 instance, you need to care for it, you need to worry about how to scale it, worry about its availability. With creating an elastic load balancer, all you have to do is register the targets with it. We worry about scaling the load balancer and also the backend targets through auto scaling groups for you. Next, security. Very, very important. We pay a lot of attention to security. Both your load balancer and the applications running on your backend targets are highly secure when you use elastic load balancing. We use best-in-class ciphers and protocols to make sure you get the best security when you're running on top of an elastic load balancer. Next, integration the elastic load balancer family of load balancers are integrated with more than 14 other aws services whether it's dns through route 53 cloudwatch for your metrics auto scaling groups for your backend targets cloud formation waf many many other things aws config cloudfront lot of lot of other services are integrated with aws elastic load balancing family Last, the cost. Running an elastic load balancer is significantly cost-effective than building your own load balancer and running inside an EC2 instance. So now let's get into how we all start building applications in the cloud. I'm sure we all start here. We build our application, get an EC2 instance, host it inside the instance, maybe a, load, uh, a database next to it, right? and let's start showing the application. So let's think about how this scales if you have a sudden spike in traffic. Is that instance that you've created able to deal with this scale? What happens if the machine crashes? What happens if your web server freezes? So these are the reasons that we don't recommend this architecture. This is not a best practice. This is not what we recommend. So this is what we recommend. Your application is distributed over three EC2 instances behind the load balancer. Even if one of these instances goes down, your traffic is distributed to rest of the two EC2 instances. If you have to scale sudden spike in traffic, both the load balancer and the EC2 instances behind it are scaled dynamically. With the introduction of application load balancer last year and network load balancer this year, It's becoming important for us to talk about the types of load balancers. Generally, there are two types of load balancers, a layer four and a layer seven. So those of you who are familiar with the OSI model in the networking world, that's where the name comes from. A layer four load balancer runs at the layer four of the OSI stack. It is a TCP load balancer, connection-oriented. The client connection comes in it is bound to a server connection. We don't do anything with the headers or the packets. If you want to preserve the source IP, we do that. Or you can use the proxy protocol that prepends the source IP, the port, the destination IP, the destination port to the response. So we'll go into a little bit more details about why you want these details in your header on the packets in the, during this session. On the other side, you have the application load balancer or a layer seven load balancer dealing with HTTP and HTTPS. HTTPS recommended way of doing this. The connections are terminated on the load balancer, and we reach the backends through a pool of connections that we have. Headers are modified. Your client IP is actually added to the X forwarded for header and sent it to your backends. So now we have a family of load balancers that we support. So application load balancer works with VPCs, HTTP, HTTPS traffic, network load balancer for TCP load, and if you still are in the classic network, it's a classic load balancer. For early adopters, thank you for being early adopters and using the classic, but we recommend you start looking at the application load balancer and the network load balancer going forward. Let's talk about the network load balancer. We launched the network load balancer on September 7th. Great adoption, great feedback so far. The things that we hear about the, from our customers is about the extreme performance, extreme performance handling volatile traffic and the latency that the that that network load balancer is able to deal with. We'll go through some of these characterizations during this session. So let's look at the characteristics of different load balancer families that we have today. So the application load balancer, like we talked about, HTTP, HTTPS, and HTTP2 to the load balancer. On the network side, it is a TCP, and classic supports both L4 and L7. Hence, it supports your TCP and HTTP, HTTPS traffic. SSL offloading supported both on the application load balancer and the classic load balancer. IP as a target, which I briefly introduced and will talk a lot more about, is supported both on the application load balancer and the network load balancer. Advanced routing features, path-based, host space, make sense for an application layer, hence supported on the application load balancer. Static IP, which is again a new feature that we introduced on the network load balancer, By static IP, we mean a single IP per availability zone. Again, we'll go into details of why having a single IP in a volatile traffic mode is important and how you can use it for whitelistings when using different use cases. WebSockets uh, for full dupless traffic, again, supported both on the application load balancer and network load balancer. Container support, both integrated with ECS and other sorts of container technology like Kubernetes, Dockers, whatever other container technologies supported both on application load balancer and network load balancer. If you see a pattern, we are spending all our features on application and network. We'll continue to sustain the classic load balancers, but the feature growth is going to happen on the application and the network load balancers. Now, let's get into some more high-level features of the uh, the network load balancer. Like we talked about, it's a connection-based load balancer. Currently, we support TCP protocol, high performance. Cold start out of the box. It can handle millions of requests per second. I'll walk you through some of the tests that we did to show how it performs under extremely volatile traffic patterns. Static IP support, again, static IP is single IP per availability zone. As you scale, your IPs don't change. You will have a single IP that you can whitelist using your firewalls and other devices sitting in front of the load balancer. We'll go through that detail use cases. Ideal again for applications with long running connections. Continuing, extremely low latencies. So microsecond latencies once the connection is set up. It's completely transparent. It doesn't even feel like you're going through a load balancer. Preservation of the source IP because it's a transparent pass-through load balancer, we preserve your source IP. We'll walk through use cases on what you can do with the source IP that we preserved. We use a simple flow hashing algorithm for our flows, uh, for a routing algorithm. We use the five Tuple along with a sequence number for this flow hashing. With respect to APIs, as all of you know, when we introduce the application load balancer, we introduce a new version of APIs. The same set of APIs is what we are building a network load balancer on. One other feature that you told us you love about application load balancer is protection before you delete the application load balancer. So we've carried on the same feature into the network load balancer. What we do here is, we've seen customers call us saying, I've accidentally removed my load balancer, can you retrieve it back for me? We can do it in some cases, where we have not used that IP elsewhere, but we can't guarantee that. So what we did was introduced a feature where we locked down, we remind you twice before, do you really want to remove your load balancer? So we carried on the same feature into the network load balancer. Let me walk you through some of the performance benchmarks that we did on the network load balancer. We used standard open source benchmarking tools to benchmark the throughput and the latency of the network load balancer. So we used bees with machine guns and sun to actually measure the throughput and the latency of the network load balancer. Let me walk you through the test setup that we had. This is a standard load balancer installed in three availability zones in U.S. uh, US East 1. For the client side, we use the Apache Workbench, 100 C4 large instance types. And on the server side, we had 75 C4 2X large, each of them having 1,000 concurrent uh, connections. All the server does is responds back with a static 1K page. So let's look at how the load balancer performed. If you look at it out of the box, 1.5 million requests per second. Nothing, cold start. Just plug it in, pumping traffic, you get to 1.5 million requests per second. This is cold start, but the same use case applies when you have a sudden spike in traffic. If you have a sudden spike in traffic all the way to 1.5 million requests per second, the load balancer scales instantaneously. So this is how it deals with extremely volatile traffic patterns. It continues to scale up to 3 million requests per second. Unfortunately, at that point, actually, the backend web servers got saturated. The load balancer could still continue. So we had to step back, add some more backends. Next, next point where it's saturated is a second saturation point you see. So if I didn't have a back-end saturation point, the red arrow shows you how the load balancer can linearly scale to tens of millions of requests per second. So in it, this is what we did with bees with machine guns. We did another test with Sun, where we had 1.6 million requests per second, sustained over hours without any traffic drops. So both ultra-low latency, extremely volatile traffic patterns, cold start is what I want to leave you with on the performance side of things. So let's get into the APIs and the modeling of how you want to build applications on top of a network load balancer. Like I mentioned before, we continued the same APIs that we introduced in the application load balancer. So the same APIs are used in the network load balancer, the same resource types. The listeners, the target groups, and targets. Yes, we need a load balancer. We retain the load balancer. So we start with attaching a listener to it. What is a listener? A listener defines a port and a protocol. In this case, the protocol is TCP and port of your choice. should have at least one listener before you start sending traffic through. You have a load balancer. You associated a listener to it. The boxed line, the dotted boxes show us the target groups. So what are target groups? Target groups are actually logical grouping of targets. The target groups can exist independently of your load balancer. You create the target groups independently, and once you create a load balancer, you can associate the target groups to the load balancer. Each of these target groups can independently scale using auto-scaling groups. And in case of network load balancer, we support up to 200 targets in each of these target groups. So we have the load balancer, we have the listener, we have the target groups, and we configure the health checks on the target group. We've enhanced the health checks in the network load balancer. We'll cover more about what those enhancements are during the session. Let's get into the actual targets themselves. We support EC2 instances, containers, and IP addresses as targets. You can register multiple ports of these targets and also you can register the same target across multiple target groups. We're giving you a lot of flexibility with this feature, but we've seen very interesting architectures by registering the targets across multiple target groups. I would be careful there. I would think about the maintainability and availability of your architectures before you register them across multiple target groups. IP addresses, we'll talk a little bit more about how how the IP addresses as a target can be used. We've launched this feature both on Application Load Balancer and Network Load Balancer in September of this year. With this, now in addition to EC2 instances and containers, you can register IP addresses as targets. That IP can be within your VPC CIDR range, or it can be direct connected on an on-prem resource which allows you to actually add workloads that are sitting inside your on-prem data centers into a load balancer. We talked briefly about the integration across multiple other AWS services with the network load balancer, ECS being one of them. The network load balancer, with the network load balancer, you can actually automatically register the tasks using the dynamic port mapping feature of the network load balancer. In addition to supporting Amazon uh, ECS container technology, we support other technologies like Kubernetes, Docker Swans, LXCs, and any other container technology. So now let's build up the whole thing. We have the network load balancer, we have the listeners, we have the target groups and the target themselves can be EC2 instances, IP addresses, and containers. And then you have the health checks, health checks associated with the, with the different target groups that we created. With this, let me hand it over to Narayan, who will walk us through the detailed features of the network load balancer.
1: Thank you, Pratibha. Uh, now that you've looked at the various performance characteristics of the network load balancer, and you've also looked at the various resources available on the NLB, let's take a look at some of the other key features. So the first one I want to go a little detailed into is the static IP feature that NLB offers. With NLB, you get a single IP per availability zone when you create the NLB. Along with that, if you do not want this IP to change for the life of the load balancer, you can also pick your own EIP from your own EIP pool and assign that to the NLB as well. If for some reason the NLB gets deleted, that EIP gets added back to your own EIP pool again. So there are many use cases that static IP feature unblocks. The most common use case is that of firewalling, where you want to whitelist a particular IP within your firewall. There are many other use cases, some of the others being $0 billing, with certain mobile carriers where they want to zero out the bill regarding some gaming applications. Right? So that's another potential use case where a static IP feature unblocks. Here is an example where you could actually go in and assign an EIP from your own EIP pool, one per availability zone, to the network load balancer. The next big feature I wanted to talk about is the preservation of source IP. Again, because NLB does not terminate the connection on the load balancer itself, it's a pass through, it's able to preserve the source IP all the way to your backend. In the past, when you had used a classic load balancer, because the classic load balancer terminated the connection, this source IP was not preserved all the way to your backend. Now, with this feature available on NLB with instances, you could now set up these IPs to be used for further processing, either for logging purposes or if you want to take actions based on those particular IPs. The other important use case that this unblocks is the setup of security groups. Because the client IPs are passed on to the backends, you could now set up security groups on your backend targets, thereby you can allow access only to certain CIDR blocks. The one particular call-out in this case is that the preservation of source IP works only when you have instances load balanced behind the NLB. If you have IP addresses that you're trying to load balance, the source IP is not preserved all the way to your backend because the IPs could reside outside the VPC. For that, we recently launched another feature called this Proxy Protocol V2. And what Proxy Protocol V2 does is, in the header information, it passes on all your connection IPs, both for the source IPs and the destination IPs, are passed down to your backend applications that you can then use for either IP blocking or if you want to do any other filtering or logging, you could just use Proxy Protocol V2 and do that when you have IP addresses being load balanced by the network load balancer. Next, let's take a look at a real-life example here where you have a firewall. So what you're seeing out here is an external network load balancer that is fronting a firewall, and then you have an internal network load balancer that is fronting a set of web servers. With the external NLB, as we spoke about, because it supports the static IP feature, you now have less number of IPs to manage, which means you can go in and whitelist those IPs with your firewalls or proxies that are behind the NLB. The next thing is that because the external NLB preserves the source IP, those IPs can be passed on to the firewall layer, which can do things like geo IP blocking. Next, we talk about the internal network load balancer. Because the internal network load balancer also supports static IP feature, you could now use that for firewalls, or you might have WAFs, or you could have other proxies that need to NAT the traffic. They could now use a single IP in their NAT state tables, and which is, again, super helpful for this kind of an architecture. The other key thing that you need to remember is that firewalls in this example are placed in auto-scaling groups. And the reason you know, they could scale is because they are fronting based on a single IP, which reduces... A of the operational pain that, that you need to deal with with this kind of architectures. This is just one example where you know, the, these features of static IP and preserve source IP are useful. We have many more examples. You know, another example that comes to mind is real-time bidding platforms you know, in the ad tech space. If you take a look at how network load balancer is, because of its ability to scale to volatile traffic patterns, It's extremely useful when you take a look at with real-time bidding platforms, and with such ultra-low latencies, it becomes a perfect product when it comes to ad tech platforms. Also, along with that, when you couple the static IP feature now, there is less amount of churn in terms of IP addresses with DNS, and the bidder can directly get to this platform without any issues. Next, we're going to cover health checks. So with health checks, again, you know, this is a very important feature, especially given that you want to move away traffic from unhealthy instances. This is extremely important for the availability of your applications and also to ensure very good customer experience in terms of your applications because you want to ensure that only healthy backends are serving traffic to your customers. So let's take a look at the health checks that are supported on the network load balancer. So Network Load Balancer supports both network health checks and application health checks. So with network health checks, we are able to move away traffic from unresponsive targets in a span of milliseconds. Thus, if you have very fast failover-oriented applications, these health checks prove to be very useful. The way the network health checks works is it looks for the normal pattern of your back-end targets to normal traffic. And if your back-end targets are very slow to respond to the traffic, or they do not respond at all, it just fails away traffic from those backends in milliseconds. Also, what you have is application health checks where you have control in terms of determining whether these are HTTP health checks. You can set them up for HTTPS health checks or TCP health checks. You can set up the frequency of these health checks and also determine the failure thresholds that you want to define for a particular health check to fail. Also, by probing a particular URL on the target, you're pretty much taking the health of the application and building that into the load balancer as well. So health checks is you know, one such awesome feature that allows you to provide a great experience to your customers by ensuring that only healthy backends serve them traffic. NLB actually allows you to mitigate these failures. Right? So we have a command called as describe target health that you can use to determine the health of your target that that is present within the target groups. So let's take a look at this particular example here. You have three EC2 instances that are behind the network load balancer. At this point, if one of the instances or one of the machines starts going bad, the health check that you just configured to be sent to your backend starts returning a failed status code back to the NLB. At that point, NLB will stop sending traffic to that particular backend target or the backend application that you have, and then distribute the traffic evenly among the two other healthy backends that you have on the NLB. At this point, if you had the describe target health command, that is actually going to identify the issue for you, and you can go fix the issue, and at that point, your backend target comes back into the equation, and now NLB will get a status code. Of a pass, and it is going to start sending traffic back to that backend. And now the load is evenly distributed among the three backends that are behind the NLB. The other thing that Health Checks allows you to do is it gives you control in terms of the successful response codes. You can set it up anywhere from 200 to 399. Also, what we provide you is something called as reason codes, which are available within both the NLB control plane API, and these are also available within the CloudWatch metrics related to the target health. You can go in here, and you can get the reason code descriptions of why a particular health check actually failed. These include states such as the target was initialized or the target is terminated, or it can give you a message that says that there was a mismatch with your response code, and it will give you an actual error code message that exactly defines why your health check actually failed. Now let's take a look at the availability zone failover. Right? So here is an example where what we have is two, the NLB in two availability zones, which means it's got two static IP addresses that have been assigned to that NLB. The Route 53 on the top left corner is resolving the DNS name of the NLB to those two IP addresses. Now, if for some reason the backends in one particular zone go unhealthy or something goes wrong with that one particular availability zone, what happens is that Route 53 will automatically now return you back the IP address of the NLB in the availability zone that is healthy. Right? So in this example, as you can see, in US West 1B, we have no healthy backends, and automatically Route 53 is now returning back only the IP address of the NLB in US West 1A, which means every subsequent connection that is going to come in at that point is now going to be routed only to the healthy availability zones. So thus, you know, with Route 53 and NLB, we are able to provide an easy DNS failover, even in the event of an availability zone having an issue. The next thing that Pratibha had spoken about is one of our core tenets around ensuring that we are integrated with the rest of the AWS ecosystem. With NLB as well, we, we are very closely integrated with a bunch of AWS services. First thing being auto scaling integration. With autoscaling, you can set up autoscaling within your target groups, and this ensures that you can scale your applications independently. In addition, we are also integrated with AWS CloudFormation, we are integrated with AWS Deploy, and with AWS Config. Also, we are very closely integrated with the Amazon Container Service, with ECS, where you can use dynamic port mapping along with your tasks and containers, and they are very well integrated with the NLB fronting those applications. The other integration point for us is the Amazon CloudWatch metrics. So ELB, with elastic load balancing, we publish a whole bunch of metrics into CloudWatch, and the same thing is true with network load balancer as well. We publish one-minute granularity metrics into CloudWatch, And this includes metrics for traffic and capacity. We send you metrics related to the back-end health. And also, the reset error counts are all metrics that are published into CloudWatch. Let's take a closer look at each of these metrics. So you have the traffic and capacity metrics, where we publish the active flow count, which includes the flows that are successfully made from your client to your targets. And because NLB does not terminate connections, any of these successful connections from your client to the targets are actually made part of the active flow count. In addition, we also published the new flow count, which is the total number of new flows established from the clients to the targets, and also processed bytes, which are the total number of bytes that are processed by the network load balancer, and this also will include the TCP IP headers that are passed as bytes into the, through the network load balancer. The next thing we should take a look at is reset counts. Here we publish your TCP client reset count, your TCP target reset count, and each of these cases, the load balancer simply passes on these resets from the client to the target or the target back to the client. And then we also publish what we call as the TCP ELB reset counts, which is any time there are reset packets are generated by the ELB or by the NLB in this particular case, we would pass that into CloudWatch as a metric that is available for you. The other thing is backend health. We do publish both the healthy host count and the unhealthy host count as metrics as well. And for this particular metric, the most important statistic Could be either average, minimum, or maximum. These these three could be the statistics that you could be using using CloudWatch, which proves to be extremely useful. The other key one is flow logs. Flow logs actually captures all the packet information, that is, all the requests or all the connection information going through the NLB are captured using flow logs, which captures all the IP traffic that is going within any network interfaces within the VPC are logged here by the flow logs as well. And flow logs are available through the CloudWatch logs, and so, so that's another tool that is available in order for you to diagnose any issues that you might be running into, right? So I just wanted to kind of highlight you know, the amount of visibility that is available for you in terms of both your applications, in terms of the NLB itself, that are available to you in terms of troubleshooting. So at this point, what I want to do is, now that we have seen all the various features, um, I want to quickly go in and show you how the API works. Um, so let me very quickly show you this. Excellent. Um, so what I have right now running is essentially an EC2 instance. And that EC2 instance is running a BAT script. And the batch script is going to go create an NLB. It's going to create the various resources that Pratiba just spoke about, including targets, target groups, and a listener. And, and the key here is I wanted to show you how the API looks like. What's the API structure to do this? I've gone in and recorded a video for this. Uh, so let me play that here real quick. So the first thing it does is I've logged on to my instance, and the instance is essentially running a batch script. It's welcome you all first, and then it's asking me what I would like to name my load balancer. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to name that load balancer test 10, and at that point, what it's done is it has gone in and created this network load balancer. As you can see, the API here is very similar to that of an application load balancer with the difference that under the type, I actually have network. It's, I'm also passing it two subnets, which are for the two availability zones. And in return, this this creation has gotten me back the on of the load balancer itself. Now I'm going to hit continue. At this point, it's asking me if I want to create a new target group. And I'm going to name this particular target group Server 10, which matches my test 10 for the network load balancer that I created. So as you can see here, it's gone in and it has created this particular target group called Server 10 with a protocol of TCP. The other thing it's done is it's created a health check. Right? As you can see there, it's created a health check with a protocol of HTTP. So it's done a HTTP health check here on health check port 80. And the probing path that it's actually using on my target is a slash to determine what the health for my target is going to be. And once it does that, it's returning back the target group on for me. And now at this point, what it's going to ask me to do is to register targets into my target group. So it's giving me all the targets that are available for me, so I'm going to go pick a couple of targets. So in this case, I'm going to pick T2 target one, and I'm going to pick in another target called as T2 target two, being my two instances that I'm registering with my target group. Once I do that, what it's done is it's registered those targets, and after it's registered those targets to my target group called a server 10, it's going to go in and automatically create a listener for me. Right? So this is my script running in. And as soon as it creates this particular listener, what it's done is it's created the protocol TCP port 80. And the default action it's provided is forward to my server 10. So essentially, at this point, any connection that is going to come in at port 80 with the protocol TCP will be forwarded to my target group server 10, and then it's going to use the five-tuple hash algorithm to and the sequence ID to pick the back end within that target group called as server 10. Along with that, also what it has done is it's issued the describe target health command there, which I spoke to you about when I was talking to you about the health checks. And here, what it's telling me is that my target health is being initialized which means my health checks are still in progress for the targets I've registered in my target group. Let me show you, you know, how my console looks like. So I'm going to refresh my console at this point. And here what you're seeing is the test 10, the network load balancer got created. The description it's telling me is it's a network type and it's an internet facing with two subnets, two availability zones. Under my listener, you can see that I have a port 80 listener, protocol being TCP, and the default action is to forward that to my target group server 10. So let's take a look at my target group server 10 now, which is the target group I created. The two targets that I registered are now showing up, which is my T2 target 1 and T2 target 2. And then, essentially, the, init- the status that it's giving me is the health checks are still being initialized, right? So at some point, what's going to happen is the-, the-, the health checks will get completed, and they will move to a healthy state. So I'm going to show you how that might look like with Server 2, which was a target group I had created earlier. So here, this is what would happen to my targets once they have completed the health checks um, and they are in a healthy state. So now that you've seen how the API looks like, the next thing I want to cover here is going to be what is the pricing for the network load balancer, right? So, One of the core things here is that with Elastic Load Balancing all our products, you pay for what you use kind of a model, which is true even with the Network Load Balancer. With Network Load Balancer, there are two pieces to the pricing. One is we charge you an hourly charge, and then there is a usage charge based on the number of connections, based on the amount of data that is being processed through the Load Balancer. On an hourly charge basis, the Network Load Balancer is 10% less expensive than, both, than the classic load balancer. And in terms of the data processing, which is the LCU charge, it is actually 25% cheaper or less expensive than both the, app, the application load balancer and your classic load balancer. And one of the big reasons, you know, when Pratibha was talking to you about the performance characteristics, network load balancer is meant for these high-throughput, high-bandwidth workloads And we wanted to make it less expensive for our customers. And as a reason of this, this is 25% less expensive than both the classic load balancer and the application load balancer. With that, let's get into the three dimensions that constitute an LCU, right? So the three dimensions that we are looking at is each LCU gives you one gigabyte per hour of bandwidth. It gives you 800 new non-SSL connections per second. And it gives you 100,000 active connections. And what we do is every hour we are looking at the maximum of these three dimensions and we are charging you only on the maximum of these three dimensions every hour. So the key call out here is you're not charged on all the three dimensions. You're only charged on the maximum of the three dimensions that you're seeing here, right? So that's another key call out to make. So now that we've seen the pricing, the next big piece is the migration path, right? Like, so what, what does it take to migrate from a classic load balancer to a network load balancer? We have a GitHub utility that we have put together that allows you to simply take your resources that are present on the classic load balancer and migrate that to your NLB, right? And also recently, about a couple of weeks back, we launched a one-step migration wizard that is available for you on the console, where it, again, takes all your resources that are available on the classic and moves that into an NLB. And at that point, all you literally need to do is just take your DNS name and move that to the new load balancer that has been created. So so it's a pretty straightforward process to migrate away from CLB or the classic load balancer into the network load balancer product. So at this point, I know a lot of you might have a question, which is, when do I actually use a network load balancer? So let's take a look at this particular table, right, um, which differentiates all the three products. So on the application load balancer side, as you can see, you have advanced content-based routing features, be it path-based routing, be it host-based routing. We recently added SNI support to it. Uh, You have SNI support. You have WebSocket support. Uh, In addition, it supports HTTP, HTTPS protocols, HTTP2 protocol. Uh, Application load balancer also supports TLS termination, Right. Now, going to the network load balancer, it supports static IP. It supports the preservation of source IP and TCP protocol. Both your application load balancer and network load balancer support load balancing to IP addresses and containers in addition to instances. And your classic load balancer, you know, it's, it's, it's lower on features. So, you know, typically our recommendation is use it if you have existing applications on the older EC2 classic network. So to summarize, you know, choose an application load balancer if you need flexible routing rules for your web applications that use HTTP, HTTPS protocols. Operating at the request level, the application load balancer offers you flexible advanced routing features, it gives you TLS termination, and it also gives you visibility features aimed at application architectures, including microservices and containers. Choose a network load balancer if you need extremely high performance, if you need performance for millions of requests per second and ultra-low latencies. Right? That's when you would go in and pick your network load balancer and it operates at the connection level. And then choose a classic load balancer if you have an older EC2 classic network application where you could go in and use a classic load balancer. At this point, you know, now that you've seen all the various features that are available on the Network Load Balancer product, at this point, I would like to invite Brian from Logly to give a customer perspective to the Network Load Balancer and also talk about how NLB has helped the architecture at Logly. Brian?
2: Thanks, Duran. A lot of good information there. Hello, everyone. I'm Brian McKinney, and I head up operations over at Loggly out of our San Francisco office. As many of you are aware, Logly is a leading cloud-based management service provider. Today, I just wanted to take a few minutes to explain our success story using NLB's product. Log management is a big data challenge. In many cases, we're talking about terabytes of continuously streaming customer data. Structured and unstructured, exponential data growth at scale. Delivering real-time indexing and search services is an assumed service level. Seconds matter, delays are unacceptable, and data loss is unforgivable. Big data services require a very resilient architecture. Let's take a quick look at Longley's big data pipeline. As you can see from left to right, Logly uses AWS's NLB product via Route 53 to load balance data ingestion traffic. This is our entry point for customer logs. NLB evenly distributes the incoming data to a fleet of collectors where we validate, pass on for processing, indexing, and make search available for customers. Routing and distributing load to healthy collectors in the pipeline is arguably one of the most important services Having the confidence that traffic is flowing unimpeded and with maximum throughput for back-end processing is critical. Let's talk for a few minutes about load balancing requirements for a minute. With all the advances in the space, we still tend to think of load balancers as a black box, simple network layer 4 pass-through devices that add no value. They don't really understand our applications. But big data challenges require much more of a sophisticated loose solution today. Load balancers must be a part of the fully integrated design. At Logly, the use case we needed to solve was much more than just distributing load. Supporting both TCP long-lived connections and persistent HTTP short-lived connections, we needed reliability. Right? We needed a solution that could adapt to different customer streaming profiles, power, Scale and economics were top-of-mind requirements. So prior to using the NLB, uh, we used to pass data directly to our collectors without anything in the middle, which worked pretty well with steady-state traffic, but it didn't really handle unexpected spikes too well. So Loggly needed a solution that was scalable with intuitive health detection capabilities that was high-performing. Let's take a quick high-level look at Logly's high-level topology. So in this graph here, you can see we operate two NOBs, one in the west and one in the east. We have 50% spot fleet instances up front, supported by 50% spot fleet in the back. We felt for our architecture, this represented the best balance of risk and cost for our, for our topology. So, regional segmentation was also very important to us. High availability was a key requirement, as well as flexibility for our CI CD deployment model and situational A B testing. Logly also takes full advantage of spot fleet instances that auto scale, and we also provide a lot of the back end rebalancing for the instances across the availability zones. This provides essential safeguards for A Z. And experience, that's experiencing problems or price spikes. We use CloudWatch in combination with Loggly Management Analytics to provide critical insight into our ingestion pipeline and consumer endpoint health. So Loggly Analytics provides us that extra layer downstream of visibility to help us understand some of those critical elements to help us with data flow down. Here's one of several views that we use in our Logly products to help operations and engineering teams check and measure incoming data flow. Uh, We heard from Naran and Pratiba earlier about some of these flows. This helps us confirm downstream event flow count by region, the capacity units by region, bytes processing, you get the flow details that you need. All these are critical insights when monitoring data, volume patterns and throughput rates between the NLB and our collectors. So how do we test all this? There we go. So during the proof-of-concept testing phase, we took a very conservative approach. We started with a historical review of all the incoming traffic volume data throughput and performance benchmarks, and we established specific NLB acceptance criteria from there. So going in... The engineering team, we made a lot of assumptions. We expected NLB would perform very well with scalability and performance. Those would be the core strengths, but we needed to prove it out. NLB probably wouldn't beat direct testing performance throughput. That means where we were from data coming from Route 53 to our collectors, how could it beat it? There were no network hops in the middle. We were about to introduce four hops. So the NLB, if we could match 90%, of what we had in place for Direct, then that was going to be a big win for us. That was going to be a good trade-off. Our use case scope was to test both syslog long-lived connections, then short-lived HTTP connections. We also needed a balanced comparative testing perspective. So we set up three test harness variables. Route 53, NLB, and a generic HA proxy setup up just for sanity testing. We started with one client sending simulated load to one collector through the NLB to establish a baseline. That established the same benchmarks for HAProxy and the direct testing. From there, we ramped up, scaling hundreds of clients, tens of collectors, adjusting processes and threads to simulate customer profiles. In the end, the testing results verified that the NLB could consistently match performance throughput that the direct testing did. So that was a little bit of a surprise. It had my head scratching a little bit on that. We never expected that. So latency was a non-issue. The test result differences were negligible. We're talking about microseconds at that point. They were non-distinguishable. In retrospect, uh, I would offer up a couple of time-saver observations when testing. Socket closing, Uh, make sure your test harnesses are not configured in a way that are, that are prematurely closing the sockets. Uh, in our case, we removed these parameters from our Python scripts that were generating the load. So that helped so that it wasn't compromising the test results. Uh, we, let, we created a steady-state connection and just let it run in a loop, especially with the long-live HTTP connections. Avoid those short-term runs. Um, I think we tend to get busy when we're trying to test new products. We tend to want to get it all done in a couple of days, so we put our test iterations at 5, 10, 15 minutes or less. Let it run for the day, let it run for two or three days, and that's going to give you a good sample size of what it actually like in production with your architecture. TCP, uh, that was another big one. Uh, set the TCP size window very high so it's not a factor. You don't want to uh, deal with your organic nature, the TCP three-way handshake getting in the way of your performance. For us, we set it at 10 million requests per second. So that that allows us to just make it a non-factor. Client side TCP schedulers, uh, that was another one I didn't expect until we got deeper into the testing. Um, there are some things that you just can't control. On the client side, many customers will run QoS and processes in their operating systems. And some of these things you'll notice through your testing, and they may Uh, your test results may fluctuate a little bit as they come in, but you should know that that's really as a result of the QS that's running on those schedulers. So that's something that we learned. Be aware of any back pressure, too, in your architecture. You may be running Kafka services and things like that that may sometimes show fluctuations in test results. Um, You may be using synchronous services that require acknowledgement before further processing. That could impact it. Uh, depending on your architecture tolerance, using an asynchronous service configuration is probably the most optimal for performance, uh, commonly known as that fire-and-forget approach. So I remember many nights when the AWS team in Logley we stayed up doing a lot of saturation testing, and we were determined to, to get to that point where we knocked over the service and the systems, and we actually never found that, that limit. Uh, We never even came close to seeing the saturation limits for NLB, and we never knocked over a collector. Uh, We did have a plateau with events per second. So for us, it was 200,000 events per second, 800 megabits per second per collector, and that was good for us. So what did we learn in summary? In summary, uh, we were able to maintain very high events per second like we talked about Whenever we did the fault tolerance between the load balancers and our collectors, it always failed over seamlessly. Uh, That was very comforting. That was one of the main exit criteria requirements for sure. There was no throughput latency performance trade-offs. Again, remember we talked early on about comparing what the NLB would give us in comparison to direct testing. Uh, The latency was a non-factor at that point. Helpful features, uh, you heard Naran talking earlier about NLB preserving the client IP to the back end, which is very important, uh, particularly in cases where the IP addresses need to be hard coded into the DNS records. Customer firewall whitelisting rules, uh, that was a challenge for us when we were sending data directly from Route 53 to the collectors, and we always had to maintain those, those whitelists. It's a non issue with NLB. And then lastly, with scalability. Um, Again, uh, the product horizontally scales very well. You're gonna get somewhere between 12 to 15 gigabits per second uh, throughput across the zones. That was a big win for us. Uh, We didn't need that much, but it's comforting to know that uh, NLB will acknowledge that hockey stick and accommodate that traffic as it ramps up. It's gonna scale with your business growth. Um, When we look at our organic growth in terms of customer traffic, it was comforting to know that it was going to be able to do that for us. Uh, The other thing is uh, introducing containers and microservices. If you have plans on doing that like Logly had, NLB is going to help you integrate and support these paths. Um, So again, these are some very important points when you're considering moving from one load balancer product to the next, especially NLB. And this is our story at Logly for the, the network load balancer. I hope it was interesting. Thank you.
1: I think, uh, I think this is the end of our presentation, and uh, thanks for your time. But we are, we are going to be around here, so if you have any questions, feel, feel free to come over. Thank you.